0: Hey, everybody welcome to shitty book reports where the reports are shitty but the books are not i'm
1: trevor clifford i'm here with mark how are you feeling mark i feel good i feel like uh wearing a travel neck pillow thing <laughs> i don't know how are you feeling
0: whoa i feel like i'm a ham baking in the oven okay So, in Los Angeles, it's still ridiculously hot. Actually, today it cooled down a little bit. I don't want to give everyone a weather report of Los Angeles, but it's (laughs) crazy because, you know, it's October, but the other day it was like 95 degrees, so crazy times. And for our international listeners, that's about 29 degrees Celsius. Um, So, you just did a bit of traveling. That's why you feel like you're wearing a neck pillow yeah and i also yeah. got one right here so
1: <laughs> nice do you are you someone who when wears was... those on the plane no i just I, I didn't even bring it with me i'm just wearing it now <laughs> uh what you're wearing it during the
0: podcast for the extreme yes. stress of yep. the podcast have you seen the clip of uh from curb your enthusiasm where it's uh larry is sitting next to a woman wearing one of those things
1: uh, th- on the plane yeah I think yeah so. it's so good
0: it's amazing <laughs> Anyway, uh, today, this is episode 38 of Shitty Book Reports. We skipped last week. I don't know if anyone noticed that, but we did end up skipping last week. So, here we are back again. I think we've only skipped two so far. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We've been pretty consistent. Pretty consistent for new podcasters. (laughs) It's pretty good. We're coming up on a year of Shitty Book Reports. So, that's pretty good. Uh, But this week, Mark asked me... Out of the blue, I don't know what he's gonna do with it, but he asked me about vocabulary. So can you give a little, give us your thoughts, Mark?
1: Yeah, uh, I was gonna start off just by confirming. I'm, you have an e-reader or like a Kindle, right? Like you have one of those. Do
0: I have do. A Kindle I brand? do. I have a Kindle Paperwhite, which okay. is my only recommendation for people who are looking to get Kindles, because I feel like <laughs> the ones with real screens that you can like watch Netflix on.
1: If you're gonna just watch Netflix. <laughs> That's no good. You can't
0: be reading. (laughs) You can't be on the beach reading one of those like Amazon Fire tablets that you can like, you know, start playing like a video game on or something.
1: Yeah, that's too easy. Yeah. um, Paperwhite. So on that, Kindle, have you ever seen or used the feature called Word Runner? Word Runner. Yeah. It's basically instead of, let me explain it, instead of like scrolling through, down through the text or like having a full page of text turning pages it mm-hmm. pretty much just you press play on it and it just flashes one word at a time in a okay. box in like the middle of the screen have you used mm-hmm. that you no. can like adjust the words per minute anywhere from I think 50 to 900 well I definitely not use that yeah you should try it it's it's interesting it's like a new kind of style of reading um, you can you can increase the words per minute to 900. You can make it go so fast that yeah, you really can't keep up with it at that point. You're like training and, yourself to speed read. Yeah, yeah. So like, I've tried. It's like you know, I, I tried it. I didn't really like it. It's kind of like you're you're registering the words and the, and sort of the context, but the the structure of the sentence is lost. It's so quick. Like right. the structure is so ephemeral. Like you can't hold on to it. Well, it's interesting too because it's like part of
0: reading. Is possibly that the structure that we're used to at least I'm open to new ideas but the the thing that we're used to is being able to kind of see the page or the sentence as a whole
1: yeah that's a new one though I would uh, just try it try it for the novelty and um, you can't blink or you'll miss like
0: (laughs) I'd like to try it I'd like to try it with a
1: book that I know really well like
0: if I did it like with one of like the you know, like the first Harry Potter book or something like, something that's like low stakes, you know, I don't want to like yeah. start, I don't want to do word runner. Is that what it's called? Yes. On like a new book that I'm trying to absorb.
1: Yeah, I could see that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Give it, give it a shot. Let me know and let me know what you think of it. It's, it's very weird. Um, yeah, and if anybody out
0: there in the social media world is, Is reading via word runner feature that's probably like going to be like a new class of readers
1: yeah (laughs) i i don't know yeah they could make it super small in that case but it's kind of i don't know i I don't i don't know if i like it um but anyways because of that like you you'd be you know staring at this one spot on the page and you might a word might fly by that you you're not 100 percent on and you know by the time you're thinking like, okay, I want to kind of think about what that means. Like you're, you're kind of behind. Right. But, um, so last week, the last or two weeks ago now, the episode where I covered white noise by Don DeLillo, I kind of talked about and read from this notebook that I had, which I mostly used to copy down certain passages that I liked in the hopes that they would kind of stick better in my mind. But I also used it for learning new words Because that's, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things about reading, you're constantly expanding your vocabulary or coming across words that you're not familiar with. Right. And, you know, I'd write down words I didn't know and then kind of go back later and look them up and write them down. So uh, uh, from that, I've got a question for you. Like, what would you say is the most difficult author in your experience, like vocabulary wise? Who makes you open the dictionary the most? Hmm. Well, I don't think really, I don't think foreign languages
0: count, you know, like, I don't want to no. <laughs> say, I don't want to say like, oh, like Dostoevsky is difficult because I have to keep looking up Russian vocabulary. I don't think that's very fair. No, we'll stick with with English. Right. Um, for this question. Or the translation into English. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely Pynchon is up there using, he has like a vast vocabulary that I think he expects a lot of his readers. Faulkner, Faulkner, just because I think Faulkner is also speaking from a different time era. Mm -hmm. So maybe even sometimes the structure of what he chooses to use in a sentence, you're like, wait, what? Like you have to kind of look it up. (laughs) Uh, And I would definitely say, I would say crossing those barriers of time. So like when I was, I, I looked up a few things when I was reading Jane Austen, Northanger Abbey, just because it's like, what are you saying? You know, like that's <laughs> well, like that doesn't not exist how you anymore. Yeah. Speak anymore? Yeah.
1: <laughs> when I was thinking about this question, like that's part of that's what I kind of uh, settled on too. Is that different time periods, different eras, like far removed from my own, is where I have the most difficulty. Like, and mm-hmm. when I boil it down to the authors, it was either I'd say Ambrose Pierce, Mary Shelley, or Thomas Hardy. And you know, there's some of your favorites. Yeah, yeah. And there's something for me about the 1800s and the English language where it's like, you know, most of the people who were able or privileged enough to write for a living were like the hyper educated. So, you know, huge privilege in their education. And I'd say pretty much anyone in the Victorian area. Victorian era kind of confuses me in that way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You're (laughs)
1: actually touching on something that I've never
0: thought of before, but I think is interesting is like sort of a... um, like a bias behind the idea. Like, you know how you, you go and read Shakespeare or you read something from the 18th or 19th century and you think like, did people really talk like that back then? And it's like, no, they didn't. (laughs) But the people who were writing are the ones where it's like, they're like 10 billion times more educated than the common man at that point.
1: Which is like sort of interesting. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I was kind of thinking of that era, and I think some of those auth- authors of, of that era are better at kind of, um, some of them are better at, than others at setting up these big or esoteric kind of vocabulary words with context clues. So I have my, my notebook here, and I wanted to maybe take a look at some of the words that I came across with no context, mm. just, you know, <laughs> plucked out of the, uh, and then I'll let you know what book they came from. Right. The first one, uh, stertorous, S-T-E-R-T-O-R-O-U-S. Say it one more time. Stertorous. Stertorous, okay. Stertorous. (laughs) That is an adjective meaning noisy and labored breathing. Comes from the Latin stertor, which is to snore.
0: Wow, stertorous. So coming across that,
1: yeah i don't i don't i guess I didn't study hard enough for the sats <laughs> or gres or whatever uh how about uh soporific S-O-P-O. i feel like that's a
0: that's a word that i feel like i've heard that i've definitely read and something where you know like I think there's actually a certain skill in sort of like skipping over vocabulary that you don't exactly know what it means I think that that bothers a lot of people yeah but for me it's just sort of like I've definitely heard soporific and been like, oh, I don't know, I'm just like kept <laughs> right, reading.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there. That's that's another thing. There are some words that you won't care if you don't know. You're like, uh the context, like it's not really adding anything, or it's not mm-hmm. taking away my understanding that much. But mm-hmm. so, soporific. That's an adjective which is tending to induce drowsiness or sleep.
0: Oh, so like if somebody's speech, it's like an adjective of like. He's so soporific that, like, I want to fall asleep when he's talking.
1: Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's a good one. So I got one more here. And they kind of sort of, it's it's another weird thing that, uh you know, when we play these games or do these, like, thought exercises, it kind of creates something interesting. So, like, the three words that I picked out from this book kind of have the theme, and the theme kind of maybe follows the book a little bit. You know, it's kind of like the fir- first in, last out thing where mm-hmm. it kind of maybe summarizes it or unintentionally, you know, gives you some of the, the plot. Um, expiation. Expiation? Does it yes. have to do something with sleep? <laughs> no. <laughs> this is a noun meaning the act of making amends or reparation for guilt or wrongdoing, like atonement. Hmm. So these kind of all have a sort of the same... Mood, maybe not the same mood, but they kind of fit the book that they came from, which is uh, As I Lay like Dying by William Faulkner, which is the first book in this magical notebook that I did a long nice. time ago. <laughs> Copying things
0: down word for word from As I Lay Dying would be very interesting.
1: Yeah, I got three, four pages of kind of some cool sentences I liked and yeah, hmm. some of these uh, vocab words. All right, next book here. Persiflage. P E R S I F L A G E. Whoa, persiflage. Okay, what's that? That's a noun uh, meaning light and slightly contemptuous mockery or banter. Hmm. Another P word, parturition, which is the action of giving birth to young or childbirth. Patrician? Parturition. Parturition. Interesting. You really have to know your roots to like <laughs> have a a solid, yeah. you know, understanding or guess at these a flatus, a divine creative impulse or inspiration.
0: Like a eureka sort of?
1: Yeah. Hmm. And then uh last one Pismire. P I S M I R E. No idea. Any any clue? Maybe some biology <laughs> people out there might know but that's a another word for ants like the insect whoa it's from the middle english it's from um piss which is alluding to the smell of an anthill plus Hmm. obsolete mire uh oh an obsolete term for an ant called um yeah i'm not sure about that one but (laughs) that's what it gave me that's what it gave me the dictionary and these were all from uh Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman, 1855. Oh, nice. Yeah, that so another, would have some stuff that you'd be like, what? <laughs> oh, yeah. I had to pick a few out of dozens. <laughs> yeah, um, which is another, interesting
0: again, because we've always talked about how the turn of the 19th century is really not that long ago.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, And one one more here, and I'm not going to say the name of the book that it's from because I got all of 13 pages in and decided it was too tall of a mountain to climb at that point it's like a thousand page book so uh i'll reveal the name once i read it (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) okay (laughs) but the one word that i got from the first 13 pages and if you can figure this out then i don't know you get bonus credit anyone out there um mithridatism mithridatism Yes. Sounds like something that's like made up in like a fantasy novel. <laughs> Some myth mithril Mithridatism. Mm-hmm. So that is actually gaining tolerance to a poison by gradually self-administering non-lethal amounts.
0: That sounds like a plot of a novel in itself.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and then um I also wrote down a quote from this book, too. There's only two things I wrote down. It's a very uh uh, bleak looking page and this random quote from the first 13 pages anything pleasurable could be counted upon to be if not categorically evil then worse, a waste of time I just thought that was a little cool snippet hmm. but yeah, do you have any uh, like random vocab words that maybe you use nowadays because you've read them, well I mean you any words you know maybe you're reading them from somewhere but how about from literature
0: um i'm not really sure i've i've actually been called out by people before some colleagues that i used to work with that they would say that my vocabulary like i they like would be slightly larger than theirs but i don't like i don't really know if there's anything that i need to like you can it's like a hard thing to realize you know like a rare word that you use that (laughs) you, but you just use it. You end up like picking it up and you just don't even know, I guess I'll have to be (laughs) on the lookout for that. But I did, I brought some vocab words from, from books that I've learned recently. Oh, okay, cool. So, uh, I have, uh, you'll remember that I did the book in cold blood on one of our episodes. Yeah. And in that book in cold blood that one of the like, women who's connected with i forget how she's connected to the murders but she's like i think she's like the girlfriend's mom no she's the mom she's the mom who like died uh they had he had this one word in there which is like really weird which is lilliputian do you know what lilliputian is
1: lilliputian hmm yeah no uh I'm not going to
0: guess. (laughs) It's from the early 18th century. And it was developed because of the imaginary country of Lilliput in in Gulliver's Travels. And Lilliputian is like, you can use it to describe like people, things that are small or like miniature but you can also, like, be into Lilliputian. Like, you can be someone who collects small things, like miniatures. <laughs> really? Cool. Yeah. And, like, the mom, like, he, uh, Truman Capote in Cold Blood, like, cal- like, casually was like, she was a Lillipute. And I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> uh, of so course. That, of course. Yeah. So that's that. Um There's a Russian word that I picked up from the several Russian books that I feel like I have. It's a word that, like, has gone from Russian to English. Like, you can find this in English dictionaries. And I feel like I've heard it randomly before. And to me, it almost sounds like I looked this up just to make sure that it wasn't. But it almost sounds like like a racist term or something. But have you ever heard the word kulak? K-U-L-A-K. No. So, a Kulak is someone so. who is like a peasant who's not like poor, but isn't rich. They're kind of like semi-wealthy and someone like like wealthy enough to own a farm, but is still like a peasant. It's sort of okay. like a class. It's like a class of people like back in like Russian history, like a Kulak. Okay.
1: Like working class kind of thing. Interesting.
0: Uh-huh. And did you ever read the, the Murakami book 1Q84? Four? No. That's so 1Q. Yeah, 1QA4 really good book, really long book. Maybe needlessly long, but still really good. <laughs> um and in that one of the otherworldly elements is this thing, a chrysalis. You know like a chrysalis is like an that's like the a uh, insect's uh, like
1: yeah, caterpillar to a butterfly. Yeah.
0: So the chrysalis I was like looking up he uses it in such a bizarre way and it may be part of the translation that i was like i want to make 100 percent sure that i know because it, it's like really important to the plot i knew what a chrysalis was but the word quiescent
1: do you know what the word quiescent means uh isn't that kind of attentive or you know like uh serving kind of thing well, it's, the, it's the exact opposite. Quiescent oh. is it? It
0: means a period of inactivity or dormancy. So, like oh, when uh, when like an insect is inside of their chrysalis, they're quiescent, okay. like not doing anything. And the last one I have is from um, this is in countless books. I just had to look it up. Um, but my the book that I had Rendezvous with Rama, which is an Arthur C. Clarke book. So one of the characters in that book is a professor emeritus. Do you know what emeritus means? Oh, God. I feel like you see that all the time. And I just always skipped over and been like, I have no idea what that means. But it doesn't really matter.
1: (laughs) I'm not good with uh, Latin.
0: Yeah. In my head, it meant like a distinction, like a professor emeritus. Like maybe that means like they're like 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 higher up the chain of professors. But it actually means that you were a professor, but you were held in such honorable regard that even when you've retired, you retain your title. So basically okay. a professor emeritus, you could in some way, like if someone was like, I'm a professor emeritus as like a way of like stating that they're an expert, it's sort of almost like, yeah, but you're out of the industry. You're like retired, <laughs> But you were really important
1: okay, so we're all, we're both like middle school or high school or emeritus. Yes, is that word yes <laughs> i am a I am a
0: high school student emeritus. <laughs> I don't know. I think the term specifically is with retirement, but oh okay. We haven't retired from being high school students.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait, I, I thought of one more vocab word I learned very recently. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know how people and whatever animals that are out during the daytime, they're diurnal. And then the opposite is nocturnal. Right. But then there's a there's all, another word for like uh, ones that are only active at like twilight times. You know what really, that that's a yeah.
0: rare species. <laughs> <laughs> I only wake up for magic hour.
1: Um, no, Crep- you know it's it's too hard to guess. Crepuscular. Wow. Yeah. Crepuscular. I Not-turnal, feel like maybe diurnal. Crepuscular.
0: Maybe like some insects are crepuscular. You know, like cicadas that you can just like hear them for like one hour during the day or whatever. Yeah. The other day, I told, like a few weeks ago, I told, because you know how you always hear that noise outside the cicadas, like the like yep. drone of the thing. I told her that that noise was insects and I think it kind of blew her mind a little bit. <laughs> she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, in the trees, they're just like making that noise. And she's like, I don't know. I think I like, sc- like scarred her worldview or something. Oh, God. <laughs> Better <laughs> off not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so here we are at episode thirty-eight. Episode thirty—an even number means that I go first, right? Yes. Okay, so uh, there wasn't much vocab that I needed to look up when I was reading this because. Uh, is it Doctor well, Seuss? No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> today is green eggs and ham. No. Uh, today I'm doing. Um, here's an author that I think always you if you're talking about literature and probably dancing around the subject of American literature as we do sometimes here on the podcast, you're gonna hear about a young gentleman named Ernest Hemingway. Have you ever heard of this person
1: yes we have. <laughs> what what Hemingway books have you read we've we've made some references before um yeah, I've read the sun also rises and very uh, good book the uh for whom the bell tolls okay yeah
0: also very good book two those are two very classic like Hemingway that's like those are like the Hemingway have you you haven't read Old Man and the Sea
1: oh yeah that as well
0: okay those do you three. agree with me that Old Man and the Sea is too simple yeah it's pretty simple it's too much it's too like <laughs> it's not enough you know, it's a pa- yeah. Like again, referencing Curb Your Enthusiasm. Have you seen the episode where they go and it and they go to Jason Alexander's house and he's written a book that's like only like eighty pages. <laughs> yeah, and then they're like, it's more of a pamphlet. I feel like the old man in the sea is more of a pamphlet. Yeah, don't Too call simple. it a book. Don't call <laughs> it a book, Hemingway. Get your shit straight. Anyway, so this. Hemingway book that I'm doing this time is actually, I mean, it's definitely not off the beaten path. This is any book written by Hemingway is is an incredibly famous book. But I am doing uh, 1964 and I actually learned from my research today that uh, this is published posthumously. I'm doing the 1964 book slash novel slash nonfiction writing called A Movable
1: Feast. Have you ever heard of this book? Heard of that. Yeah, that's a cool title.
0: It is a cool title and I'm going to dive into, I'm going to dive in right away to why it's called The Movable Feast. And it's actually really cool. It's posthumously um, published. It's based on some of his notebook. He was actively writing it. So it's sort of, it's not really something where it's like, oh, this manuscript was like pulled together by his estate yeah. or whatever. It was something he was actively writing towards the end of his life. Um, Wait, can I, can I take a guess? The
1: Movable why, Feast?
0: Why it's called that. <laughs> what sure. that
1: means to me. Yeah, what it does it mean be to uh, you? A movable feast that's like a, a snack on the go.
0: Yeah, right. So like a like slice like of go- pizza in New York. Yogurt, Gogurt, <laughs> like trail mix. <laughs> yeah. Someday Gogurt's going to buy the the rights to a movable feast and then and they're just going to go hog wild with the ad, with the social ad campaign. It's Gogurt, a movable feast. Um yeah. No, a movable feast it, it actually relates to a quote that Hemingway said to one uh, bio, his biographer and one of his good friends. Uh, he said this to his friend, and then basically when his wife was putting together the publishing after he had already died, they, he said, you should call it a movable feast. But this is an indirect quote by Ernest Hemingway, and it says, if you're lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you, for Paris is a movable feast. And I relate to that quote pretty freaking hard, because as maybe has been discussed on the podcast before, I first lived in New York City, then I lived in London briefly, now I live in Los Angeles, and uh, wow, what a charmed life. And uh, I completely relate to that, because I feel the same way about New York City. I think that if you sow your seed in New York City, and it's somewhere that you've developed for any amount of critical period of time that New York is a movable feast. Cause it is, it just stays with you. Like it's not, it's like a mode of observation that it allows you to get into. And I think that Hemingway probably felt the same way about Paris because this book is a nonfiction. It's basically his diary. Like it's a nonfiction account of him being sort of a down and out writer in Paris at the time when, uh, He's hanging out with such names as James Joyce, you may be familiar with. Um, Another young writer named F. Scott Fitzgerald and his girlfriend-slash-wife-slash-tormentor, Zelda Fitzgerald. uh, And Gertrude Stein. And um, basically, I felt about this book when I was reading it. It's definitely a good sort of... This is definitely an inspirational book for people who... Have read maybe a little bit of American literature, but also have aspirations of becoming a great writer or hanging out with the literati of any given period. Um, In a weird way, reviewing this book, I almost felt like I was... You know how I've talked about the Joan Didion power of being in the center of everything?
1: Yeah, the right place, right time.
0: Right place, right time kind of she creates her own center of gravity and I feel like Hemingway is the same way where it's like okay, so in the 1920s when Hemingway lived in Paris and he actually at that at this time obviously Hemingway is not Hemingway. He has he is like starting to write The Sun Also Rises or something like that or I forget which book he's like starting to write but he's not Ernest Hemingway yet. He lives in Paris and it's a time of, it's sort of like one of the, like the famous, like Paris, like renaissances, like all those people who I just mentioned, lots of famous American writers are kind of in and out of the scene in Paris. And uh, he doesn't even have enough money to buy books. So it's not like he's the epic Ernest Hemingway that we think of surrounded by, you know, like a library of leather bound tomes smoking a pipe. He's like, a young guy who's so destitute that he doesn't really own books. He has like notebooks and pens and uh, a friend of his who is the current owner of, uh, have you ever heard of a famous bookstore called Shakespeare and Company? I didn't know it
1: was a bookstore. I've heard of that.
0: Yeah. It's also like an imprint. It's like at this point, it's also like an imprint for books and stuff like that. And they do like, events and readings and stuff. But Shakespeare and company was, I think maybe the original store was, is in Paris. It's like not very far from Notre Dame. I've been there myself. It's uh, amazing bookstore, amazing place to visit. Just has like a lot of history, but the owner at the time there was like a kind of like a borrowing scheme, almost like at a library where you could borrow books from Shakespeare and company. And, uh, it, Hemingway had a discounted rate. As, <laughs> he couldn't even <laughs> he couldn't even rent books. That's how, how much how much how many favors he needed. So, uh, <laughs> he had a discounted rate at Shakespeare and Company, but it's just like one of those books where as you're reading it, you're kind of wondering in that same Joan Didion fashion of like are you name dropping or like these were like your friends and like whatever. And it's just like a really it's a nice like writer's rate. It's definitely inspirational for people who um, maybe are traveling to Paris, or you have already traveled to Paris. Because another thing that is very on the nose about this book is it almost is like, in a way, you know how um, what's his face, the Norwegian guy with the big diary that's oh so Nosgard. important to us, yes, Nasgard. It's almost in a way like Nasgardian in the sense. Well, maybe Nasgard is in some way taking after Hemingway because it's like a Sorry, diary. Yeah. It's a diary that's so specific that he just, like, says actual addresses of cafes and addresses and buildings and stuff that still exist in Paris, which is pretty cool. Like, if you're a Hemingway fan, you can – I actually looked this up online for research, like, for today's podcast. You can still, to this day, go on walking tours in Paris that are the movable feasts, like, walking tour.
1: Nice. Like, yeah, you can, I think we can. we've talked about him as being, like, a, you know – he would have been a travel blogger yeah he oh definitely yeah.
0: well the other thing that's weird about Hemingway is that there I feel there actually is like this whole deep dark world of getting into his complete biography because a movable feast is like an autobiography of something that he wrote in sort of like an idyllic time in his life when he was like just starting to you know half of the scenes are like I'm writing this in my diary smoking a cigarette outside a cafe in 1920s Paris like it's so (laughs) idyllic like and, and and it has that homey like quality and feeling to it, you know, where it's just like wow, I'm reading this like epic guys like very beginning. But there's like crazy stuff about Hemingway's life like one time I when I was in a, a bookstore, I think it was like that massive bookstore in Nashville that I was like sending you nerding out and sending you pictures of. Um Mhm. There's, like, the, like, the biograph there's biographies of Hemingway's life for, like, really weird stuff, like, I, I, when I was reading one of the backs of his biographies, I almost felt like it was a semi-fictional account, like, he was, like, he, like, worked for the U.S. government, like, as, like, a spy and shit like that. Like there's all these crazy <laughs> really? things about Hemingway later in life that like his life is very deep and probably maybe overanalyzed. Like somebody who is so revered that it's like we want to find out what happened to him every day. Like what it, what was his lunch, you know, in 1940 or whatever. Um, but yeah, this is direct from the source. It's interesting that it's published posthumously. Uh, obviously, with something being published posthumously his wife at the time like put it together his wife at the test at his time of death put it together like with his estate that he left behind With something like that, obviously you can go on Wikipedia and find there's like people who are like, she manipulated the text or she took out this part and added this part or whatever. Um, But one of his best friends and the guy that he said the quote to for the movable feast thing, he's like, yeah, it's basically like one to one, like his diary. Like You don't really have to worry too much about stuff like that. In fact, somebody who was like sort of a reactionary to the original publishing, his uh, grandson from like a different from uh, like a different wife, like a different mother. He came out with an edition in 2009 and people like universally shit on it. They were okay. like, you have like, cause he was like, the original text is not as, you know, like whatever. And he tried to make like another like updated version. And they're like, actually you've manipulated it more than other people (laughs) because he like took stuff out about like his grandma and stuff because it's like him like like Hemingway like talking because this book is very raw like he has like meetings with uh, Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda at like the height of their alcoholism and stuff like that and he's like yeah like you know like Scott like he was a hypochondriac who was like super wasted there's even a scene there's a hilarious scene that I want to read from now um, that is there's like this scene where scott fitzgerald comes to him and he's basically tells him that zelda his girlfriend told him that he has a small penis and then and hemingway is like convincing him that he's fine so i'm gonna i'm gonna read this for you okay so uh i can't decide where i want to start because if i start too early it's going to take forever uh, so they're in a cafe, and Scott like is basically confiding in Hemingway. Uh, Zelda had had has just had what they call in those days a nervous breakdown. So she's kind of freaking out a little bit and having some maybe anxiety or depression. And Scott Fitzgerald and Hemingway are in a cafe in 1920s Paris. Can you see it now, Mark? Is it sepia toned? Yes, I got and the It's very epic. Okay, so finally we were eating the cherry tart and had a last carafe of wine. He said, you know, I never slept with anyone except Zelda. Uh, Hemingway says, no, I didn't know. I thought I had told you. No, you told me a lot of things, but not that. And Scott says, this is what I have to ask you about. Okay, good, go on. Zelda said that the way I was built, I could never make any woman happy. And that, and that was what upset her originally. She said it was a matter of measurements. I have never felt the same since she said that, and I have to know truly. Come out to the office, I said. That's Hemingway speaking in first person. Where is the office? Le water, I said. We came back into the room and I sat down at the table. So basically, he takes Scott Fitzgerald to his office to look at his penis. And, oh my <laughs> God. and Hemingway says, you're perfectly fine, I said. You're okay. There's nothing wrong with you. You look at yourself from above and you look foreshortened. Go over to the Louvre and look at the people in the statues and then go home and look at yourself in the mirror in profile. Those statues may not be accurate. They are pretty good. Most people would settle for them. But why would she say it? To put you out of business. That's the oldest way in the world of putting people out of business. Scott, you asked me to tell you the truth and I can tell you a lot more, but this is the absolute truth and all you need. You could have gone to see a doctor. But I didn't want to. I want you to tell me truly. Now do you believe me? I don't know, he said. Come on over to the Louvre, the famous, you know, museum in Paris. Come on over to the Louvre, I said. It's just down the street and across the river. We went over to the Louvre and he looked at the statues, but was still doubtful about himself. It's, it is not basically a question of the size and repose, I said. It's the size that it becomes. It's also a question of angle. I explained to him about using a pillow and a few other things that might be useful for him to know. <laughs> <laughs> so basically picture Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald as young men looking at statues in the Louvre and being like, the size of your penis is fine. Look at that statue. You're totally fine.
1: <laughs> it sounds like so th- American pie or something. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> this is, this is uh Hemingway at his most raw, but obviously there's also some Hemingway Stifler as
1: Stifler or something.
0: Yeah. Shit. Beautiful statements in there about love and life and relationships and everything. But he does, you know, it's just bare addresses. And actually, one of the reasons why it is that way is actually really cool. The way that it was published, um, like I said, posthumously put together by his estate and everything, but it's also a really cool story. Um, this friend that I keep on mentioning is this guy, A.E. Hochner, who, uh, Aaron Edward Hochner, is he's like an American editor, novelist, whatever. He was like Hemingway's best friend. And it's actually. In 1956, he's quoted as saying, in 1956, him and Ernest Hemingway were revisiting in Paris the Ritz, the Hotel Ritz in Paris. And when they were eating there, and obviously at this point Hemingway has become a famous, world-famous author, when they're eating there, somebody like the host or like one of the managers or whatever comes over and he says, you know, there's a box of your shit in the basement. <laughs> And Hemingway is like, whoa, I didn't real like, I don't really remember, like, storing these things when I, like, he must have moved out of Paris or, you know, this is how the world worked, like, back then. It was like, you left your shit behind. And it's another cool thing about removable feasts is, like, obviously no one has an iPhone. So, like, there's one story when he goes to meet Fitzgerald and it's like, oh, he just, like, wasn't at the hotel that we agreed at. So, I'm just going to stick around for a day to see if he, like, <laughs> comes around, <laughs> you know, Um So yeah, they're in this Paris. They're in this cafe in Paris in 1956, and basically they just find a a chest full of Hemingway stuff. Again, very Joan Didion esque. It's a 1920s Louis Vuitton chest that had been made specially for him back in the day. It's like what the hell? Um, (laughs) And uh, and Hemingway opens up this chest and he's like, "Oh shit, these are my diaries." And then he just starts working on this book because he had syrup found these diaries like you know 30 40 years later um so yeah it's a really cool book i would definitely say it's kind of one of those books where i would say if you want to be like inspired to like it's like the tip top of like i want to be an author i want to be like cool and it's like these were the cool cats like these were the people who were hanging out in shakespeare and company in 1920s paris um on the heel of proust's death and uh and just living life to its absolute literary fullest um and trying to get their careers off the ground so i'll pause everything i'll stop my shitty book report with probably one of the longest one star reviews that i've ever read it's only like (laughs) two short paragraphs but i feel like i have to read the whole thing because I can. yeah i can definitely get why some people don't like hemingway I think I personally think you're a little bit nuts if you don't like Hemingway because he's such an institution and he's obviously changed the course of literary history. but uh, James Spina, his one-star review for a movable feast. I'm heading for Paris on a work-related trip in a few weeks, so I thought I'd get in the mood by dipping into Papa. a lot of people call Hemingway Papa. Big mistake. I guess you had to be there. This is nothing but a bunch of mundane moments strung together by some boring name dropping and squalid hygiene habits. I've never really been a fan of anything other than Ernie's short stories and now I remember why. He didn't write briefly for effect. He did it because he didn't really know enough words. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it always sounds like he's peeking over his chubby little shoulder, looking for a camera the camera, ready to laudscape his every thought. A movable feast is really nothing more than a movable fat man looking for a meal and some hotties to hang on his precious words. Paris is, <laughs> Paris prep. Paris prep is far better satisfied by listening to some Django sipping on a cream of coffee and pondering the reason cufflinks are used on French cuff shirts. <laughs>
1: Sounds like he thinks of uh, Hemingway as like Ferris Bueller being like... Yeah,
0: yeah right. You know, he's, breaking the fourth he, wall or like... Yeah, he's just snarky. looking... Yeah, he's he's ready to look at the camera and he's trying to pick up hotties, which is definitely another element of a movable feast. Uh, yeah, he's definitely uh, catting around Paris, even though he's married at the time. There's there's many salacious... Sal, I don't even know... Salacious? Salacious details, yes. Your vocab intro effed me up <laughs> uh so yeah movable feast definitely check it out if you want to be
1: inspired to write check out a Movable feast nice that's interesting that you that was your takeaway from your book this week because i have something kind of similar like they kind of would pair hmm. together with the book that i covered this week cool uh, but first you know a little behind the scenes you know trevor and i we were gonna record on short notice last week with only like a few days to read um but then we, you know, kind of decided to push it, push it off a week. But um, because of that, you know, original like short uh, window to you know finish a book, I decided it was time to read this sort of alternative book that I w- had been considering for a while. Hmm. Not, not even really close to a novel, and it's something that I originally saw recommended by uh, a person by the name of Arian Foster who is actually a recently retired NFL player. He was an all pro running back for the Houston Texans for years. And, you know, he was, I always thought he was cool. Like during his playing years, he was always very outspoken, definitely like went against the grain, uh, just a really unique, you know, really smart dude. And ever since he retired, like a few years ago, he's just been doing cool stuff. Like he's got his own podcast where he talks to, you know, wide range of people. And he's really just kind of open to learning all the time and keeping like an open mind. And anyway, he he recommended this book that, I, that I've got here, which is, yeah, not a novel. More like a, I mean, not really self-help either. It might fit in its own category. It's, it's a motivational read, I guess. Inspirational, motivational kind of thing. And it's an interesting look at the creative process and where people get caught up in trying to be original in their mm-hmm. creative pursuits. Mm-hmm. Now, you've definitely put your life in a more you know creativity based path than myself. Like, do you worry about being original or staying creative or not, you know, treading um, the same paths as others? How, how do you feel about that? Uh, it's like
0: an interesting thing to bring up because I think this is something that gets kind of like beaten out of you in art school, to be honest. Yeah. Um, It's kind of like, first of all, like every like creative professional, like person kind of gets quickly over like the idea of like constructive criticism and like taking criticism and like whatever, because your professors kind of like just sort of like harass you until everything is shit and like. (laughs) tell you everything is horrible and like also a lot of the like art school process is like having your other peers tell you what you think they think and then you kind of have to like you develop this like idea that um it's called like the grain of salt you know like you take everything with a grain of salt and if you want to if there's like a certain criticism that comes your way and you and you're starting to accept it then that means it's like a genuine one kind of okay um but as far as like originality yeah i would say like There's actually a really great book, and I'm going to type it into Google, like, really quickly, um, (laughs) by uh, Austin Kleon, who's
1: like a TED Talk kind of guy. Oh, what's the book called? Show Your Work. Oh, because that's funny. Um, The book that I'm covering today is by him, and it's called Steal Like an Artist.
0: Oh, Okay. (laughs) Oh my god! I can't believe you're doing steal your steal like an artist. That's the one I was trying to say. No, seriously, yeah. I was leading up to saying because there's that book where it's basically telling you that you should basically try to emulate your heroes because because of your point of observation. Did you already say Austin Kleon's name? Was I like not? No, paying no, attention? no.
1: I, w- I was leading up to it, but that's awesome. <laughs>
0: Whoa. Okay. Yeah. So steal your there's show your work and then there's steal your work, right? Yeah, I haven't.
1: I haven't steal like uh, an artist it, and
0: show your work. Yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. The, I've only read this one. Yeah. Uh, so this is background for people. It's a book by Austin Kleon. He's from Austin, Texas. And you know this book is cool because it's not it's not conventional at all. There's a lot of um, I guess I would say Dimitri Martin esque drawings in it and tons yeah. of quotes like from cool people. Like let me uh, read this real quick from page eight. As the French writer Andre Gide put it, everything that needs to be said has already been said. But since no one was listening, every, everything must be said again.
0: Yeah. No, you yeah, know, I'm the definitely. Idea that nothing is original. Yeah, it's funny that I was like you did this book because I was leading the conversation towards there's like this concept, steal your work, where it's basically like or steal like an artist, where it's basically like. It's the idea that like, have you ever heard of like? I'm sure you've heard of it. Like the scientific, I like they prove that if you observe an experiment, it changes it. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. There's like some quantum theory thing about like if you observe an experiment, then it like necessarily changes the outcome.
1: And I the think observation it's the, has an effect. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I think it's the same thing with um, Steel like an the concept of steal like an artist is basically like if you went and said I'm going to write uh you know a movable feast just like i like hemingway did then your adaptation of it would
1: be different it would yeah. be from you it wouldn't be from hemingway yeah yeah and um yeah that's cool it's and like this this book is really kind of even i mean it's it's about every medium too you know it's not about just being uh you know writing or you know filmmaking or any other kind of art it's 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 a it's kind of just a kick in the ass to stay creative in whatever you do right and like the message is pretty consistent throughout it's like you go you know kind of boils down to draw the art you want to see write the books you want to read do the work you want to see done and uh so so you've read this before did did you ever take anything from it like to you know if you're in a creative funk or something or Mm. um Yeah, I don't know. You stealing anything? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. It's not. I
0: don't know if it's like a creative funk. Actually, steal like an artist. This is like sort of funny, but the my original introduction to Austin Kleon is his other book called "Show Your Work," which is also like sort of like pamphlet sized. And it's um and it's about how in the modern era, like with social media and everything, I like there's a lot of people out there who are like, I can't show anyone my film until it's hundred percent done. But in the yeah. modern era, you actually your audience is part of your creative journey. So his other work called Show Your Work is about just being like if you're making a painting, like don't be afraid to just like tweet a picture of the unfinished painting. Like no one cares. You just, just being have to open like, to
1: feedback. Yeah, you just right. have to get out yeah. there.
0: And um, so then steal like an artist, actually my, one of my former managers at my very corporate, not super creative job, he was trying to like make us kind of take bigger liberties with like trying to get us to be more creative in like this corporate box. And he gave the whole team steal like an artist. And it's like, yeah, it's like this sort of concept. And yes, it did lead to not really stealing, but like I filmed a commercial for that company where it was like, okay, marketing department, here's the idea. Here's a commercial that we like. We're going to try to make that commercial like pretty much exactly the same except for our product. And obviously, just like Cleon said, as the creative process goes forward, that's your like guiding light. But no one would watch the two commercials and be like, they're the same,
1: you know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, no, that's cool. Um, and yeah, this is, it's just a neat book. You know, it's kind of, it's a nice, uh, coffee table book, like maybe something we've talked about before and a little more But
0: neither of us have coffee tables.
1: Yeah. No coffee table to put it on. I have to um, buy a
0: coffee table just to put coffee table books on
1: it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, it's from 2012. It's like a New York times bestseller. Um, and the reason I read this, I mean, I'm not involved in too much creative, like other than this podcast, I guess, you know, I like to try and write every once in a while, like to try and draw, uh, you know, do certain artistic things. And sometimes I'm good at it. Sometimes I'm not. And, you know, I just was looking for some kind of inspiration or maybe some more, um, I guess guidance on how to even start, you know, in some things, but, um, I guess, so, so this book, it, it kind of, It's set up where it's 10 steps of either things you need to remind yourself periodically or like specific ways to kind of keep your creative fire burning. So I'm just going to run through those 10 things because they're right on the back cover and says, uh, you know, unlock your creativity. One, steal like an artist. You know, we kind of talked about that. Two, don't wait until you know who you are to get started. Mm. Three, write the book you want to read. And I'm still kind of figuring out what book I want to read because <laughs> I've always wanted to, you know, um, yeah, I think there's actually a similar, I think there's actually a similar
0: weirdly enough, uh, Metallica quote of that, of basically James and, and Lars saying like, we made the music that we weren't hearing
1: because we yeah. want not hear it. <laughs> and that's, yeah, that's so, that becomes so apparent when you listen to it. like they did They've, done a lot of covers of like shit that they were into and mm-hmm. they you know their stuff is so much <laughs> in my opinion so much better than their influences yeah. like yeah making um, up their own thing yeah <laughs> uh, number four on the list use your hands that's you know self-explanatory number five side projects and hobbies are important you know it kind of you divert your attention a little bit and that can maybe help you in your in the main thing that you want to you know be creative in right Number six, The Secret, do good work and share it with people. Like you were saying, you know, don't be afraid to show your work. Yeah, he wrote
0: like a whole other book about that. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Number seven, geography is no longer our master. You know, modern times you can find out everything you want to know about anything. Absolutely Um, true. Number eight, be nice. In parentheses, the world is a small town. Just true, don't burn any bridges.
0: Also 100% true. This
1: Austin Cleon guy is a genius. (laughs) uh number nine be boring it's the only way to get work done i think that's kind of you know set a schedule try and stick to it Mm -hmm. um you know well that's like that's also a that's a discipline that's advice
0: from uh mr haruki murakami his his like whole thing is like i do the same exact thing every (laughs) single day no matter what and obviously you can see the results i mean he comes out with a book like every few years he runs 10 miles a day or something right yeah, he runs, then writes, then like yeah, he like <laughs> it's the same thing every day, which is actually interesting because I recently rewatched the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi about the sushi master, and I think that might also have like a it might also be like a semi cultural thing, like a Japanese thing of like do the same thing always every day until you're a master.
1: Yeah, the ten thousand hours, but yeah, you know. Divided by it, you know, every day, every day, stick to it. And then number 10, last on the list, creativity is subtraction. Hmm. And the quote kind of that fits that, or, you know, the example from the book is right here. The right constraints can lead to your very best work. My favorite example, you know, we talked about earlier, Dr. Seuss wrote The Cat in the Hat with only 236 different words. So his editor bet him that he couldn't write a book with only 50 different words. Dr. Seuss came back and won the bet with Green Eggs and Ham, one of the best-selling children's books of all time. Nice. Only 50 words in that one. Nice. And that would make sense for like a children's book, like narrowing down the vocabulary and understanding. That's awesome. And then, um, so yeah, this is a great, great book for kind of, uh, getting yourself back on track. Cause you know, most, most people have something that they like to do, maybe some hobby. Um, it's not all always about, and it, um, you know, turning it into a career or making money off of it. Even, even if, uh, it's just something you enjoy doing it, a way to help you be more creative. It'll, you know, help you feel better about whatever you're doing, even if you're not even sharing it with anyone. Yeah. Uh, So I'm going to end here with a short paragraph that was interesting to me. Just uh, another kind of... This book is, you know, filled with sort of stuff like this. Remember, even the Beatles started as a cover band. Paul McCartney has said, I emulated Buddy Holly, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis. We all did. McCartney and his partner John Lennon became one of the greatest songwriting teams in history. But as McCartney recalls, they only started writing their own songs as a way to avoid other bands being able to play our set. As Salvador Dali said... Those who do not want to imitate anything produce nothing. Hmm. You have to figure out who to copy and what to copy. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. to take it your own
0: way. You can find a quote like that from like literally any like major creative that you admire, filmmaker, writer, like whatever they at like at some point they may have given an interview or something where it's like, well, I just wanted to be, you know, this other
1: person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome um I guess so I got a one star review here from Cindy and you know I could I can see definite complaints with this book because it's very very minimalist you know don't look to it for secrets on unlocking some hidden power it's Mm -hmm. really I think better suited as just like a nice reminder that you got to kind of stay active pay attention to what it is about the art that you like and you know take it from there and that's kind of what I what it did for me I would say um So the one star review here, (laughs) the advice is so generic that ends up being nothing more than empty blanket statements. It's forgettable, shallow, and serves no great purpose. The book is more of the author's art project to further build his personal brand. Still, you would think the project could be a little more original or valuable.
0: Wow. Harsh.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I don't
0: know. I think that I, I would disagree with her. I think that she's looking for the miracle cure yeah
1: yeah it's not when really
0: it's like not a guide it's basically just telling you like it's i think i think part of his like whole thing is giving you permission you know yeah like it's okay just like do what you're thinking like just write like write supposedly the same book as zadie smith or whatever it won't be the same (laughs) yeah
1: (laughs) exactly exactly no that that's that's awesome um so it's effects on me are um, to be determined. Nice. When I produce the next you know, great American novel by copying Green <laughs> Eggingham. and
0: <Ham. laughs> Only 50 words. It'll pro- <laughs> that would probably be The Old Man in the Sea. That's probably what
1: he did. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah so uh, 2012's Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon. 10 Things Nobody Told You About Being Creative. Nice. So check that one out. So thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us every Sunday on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, Instagram, and Twitter at SBRThePodcast. Uh, no spaces there. You can also email us at SBRThePodcast at gmail.com. Give us your comments, suggestions, corrections, or you know whatever you're feeling. See you next time.